Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Last night there was an epic battle in the world of college basketball. I saw the beginning of the game and the end of the game, but missed large portions in between. It did add up to its billing, they often don't, but uh, there were some 18 lead changes along the way, and for the first time in NCAA history, Duke played North Carolina in the tournament. They have played each other twice every year because they are from the same conference. They often meet in the tournament uh, in that conference for a third time in many years, but this was the first time in history they'd ever met in the NCAA tournament. Add to that the fact that this was Coach K's last season coaching the Duke Blue Devils. It was indeed must-watch TV, except for the fact that it started way too late on the East Coast. Those two teams, Duke and North Carolina, are some of the most well-known in basketball history, the Blue Bloods in college basketball. Even country music singer Eric Church, did you hear this? He's a lifetime North Carolina fan, and he so wanted to go to the game that he canceled a concert last night in San Antonio, Texas, so that he and his family could go to the game in New Orleans, much to the dismay of thousands of concert goers. We like epic battles, whether they occur on the, in the sports world or whether they occur on the real battlefield. That is why many of us read books about the various wars that have been fought. Others watch TV programs or movies depicting these battles. I read a lot about World War II, though I have recently branched out and read several books about the Vietnam War and the Korean War. There's just something about the two powerful forces coming together with so much on the line, so much hinging upon the outcome. I'm certainly not trying to glamorize war this morning. I, too, like you, are praying for peace when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, and I certainly don't want to be personally involved in any battles. I I just like to read about them. But this morning, our ancient encounter is going to be an epic battle, one that is still remembered after all of these years, not only because of the pages of Scripture, but there's actually still a statue On the battlefield, a statue I'll show you at the end of the sermon this morning, our battle takes place during the time of the prophet Elijah. But in truth, it is a battle between God and those who thought they were God. This ancient encounter with Elijah as the main actor is actually God's battle. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40, And since it's rather lengthy, I'm going to divide it up this morning and read it point by point as we progress through the sermon. Elijah, the prophet of God, is all alone, or so he thinks. He is up against 450 prophets of Baal and potentially another 400 prophets of Asherah, though there is some debate about that, which we'll talk about. 
Either way, Elijah is up against tremendous odds in this battle. If you were gambling, and I'm not encouraging it, but if you were gambling, the smart money would be on the king and his hundreds of prophets. And yet that would be a foolish bet because God is on Elijah's side. And of course, we know that the side God is on is going to be victorious. So we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. And I want to encourage you to stay with me, not read ahead to figure out what's going on, but follow along with me. And as we read these verses, you might notice the background to our slides this morning. It's actually a picture I took on Mount Carmel. This is the view from the site where this battle takes place, where we were several years back. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together out at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, I've always liked Elijah, probably because of my love for R.G. Lee's famous sermon, Payday Someday. And that sermon recounts the story of Ahab and Elijah and Jezebel when it comes to the story of Naboth's vineyard, a story that occurs later than what we're looking at this morning. We, of course, are in chapter 18. We are first introduced to Elijah in chapter 17, and we know virtually nothing about him other than the stories that we find in these pages. His name means the Lord is God, and that is certainly going to be appropriate in this battle. He is from a city named Tishbe, though we don't know exactly where that is located. And although you might not know him overly well, and you probably consider people like Moses to be the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, or, or perhaps men like Jeremiah and Isaiah, because they have long books named after them, and Elijah does not, I want to remind you that there are only two men with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and those two men were Moses and Elijah. So he certainly ranks right up there when it comes to prophets of the Old Testament. King Ahab also ranks right up there, but not as a prophet. He ranks right up there as one of the most wicked of all of the kings. The Bible says of him, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. R.G. Lee in that sermon introduces Ahab with these words. He says, I introduce to you Ahab, that vile human toad who squatted on the throne of Israel. He goes on to describe him as the worst of Israel's kings. We looked at King Solomon last week, and he died in 931 B.C. After his death, there was a civil war, and the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom is comprised of ten tribes and retains the name of Israel. 
Over the course of their some 200 years of history, they had 19 kings, 20 depending on how you counted because there was some division along the way, but they had 19 or 20 kings, all of whom are described in the Bible as being wicked or evil, all of them doing evil in the sight of the God. Ahab, the one we're looking at, is the seventh or eighth, again, depending on how you count it, in the line of these northern kings. The southern kingdom was called Judah. It lasted over 300 years. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, with its capital in Jerusalem, had roughly the same number of kings, but about half of them were good and half of them were evil. It was comprised of only the tribe of Judah and part of the tribe of Benjamin, which is why it was called Judah. It met its end after some 300 years in 586 BC when the Babylonians with King Nebuchadnezzar conquered them, destroying Jerusalem and the temple, something we talked about this past Wednesday night. So back to Ahab, a king in the northern kingdom this vile human toad squatting upon the throne whose reign is all the more worse because of his wife. You know, we're not usually told the names of the king's wives, but with Ahab, we are because she is infamous. Her name is Jezebel, and her evil is so legendary, the name is still associated with wickedness and is not even used to this day. I did a quick search of the name Jezebel and could not come up with anybody named Jezebel. I personally do not know anybody named that name. If you do, I would encourage you to encourage them to go by their middle name because it is still associated with evil and wickedness. R.G. Lee, again, paints a picture and describes Jezebel as a painted viper of Israel, the beautiful adder beside the toad. We looked last week about how God had warned about idolatry, the worship of false gods. Ahab came to the throne in 874 BC, or just under 60 years after Solomon's death. So remember last week, God had warned about false worship and idolatry. And now, just under 60 years later, according to verse 19, which we did not read, there are some 850 false prophets either for Baal or Asherah, telling us how widespread idolatry was. Now that is all background, setting the stage for this epic battle. And so we finally make our way to our first point this morning, which is the silence of confusion before the battle begins. Three years earlier, Elijah had predicted that there would be no rain and his, his prediction had come true, meaning that there was drought and famine. This is ironic, given the fact that Baal is the god of nature or rain or fertility. There were other local deities. That's why in the Bible, sometimes you see Baal, then a hyphen, and then some other name, because there were local identities of Baal. But overall, god, Baal was the god of nature. And so Elijah meets Ahab after this time of drought, and Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel. Elijah responds by saying, I'm not the trouble of Israel, 
But the one who is troubling Israel is you and Jezebel because of your worship of false gods. And so they are all summoned to Mount Carmel for this showdown. We're actually not told whether the 400 prophets of Asherah actually attend. In verse 19, they are with Jezebel. We know that Jezebel is not on Mount Carmel because after this story, Ahab recounts to her what has transpired. So, so whether the 400 prophets of Asherah attend or not, we're not really certain. They are, we are not told that they are killed at the end of the story as the prophets of Baal are. But regardless... Whether this is Elijah versus 450 or whether this is Elijah against 850, it is tremendous odds. And so Elijah first speaks to the crowd of people that is gathered. And this is where we get the silence of confusion. He accuses them of limping along between two opinions, not sure of which God to give their allegiance to. And so they hedge their bets giving allegiance to all of the gods or going back and forth. They haven't totally rejected the God of their fathers. They've simply added to the worship of God many other gods along the way, gods like Baal and others. And when Elijah confronts them and says, you need to make a decision about which God is true and give the true God your allegiance, they simply don't know what to say. It's like that awkward pause when someone says something that they shouldn't have said and you don't know how to respond and so everybody's just quiet. That's what we see. Elijah says to them, you need to decide which God is God and that's the God you need to give your allegiance to and they don't know what to say. I could certainly make a strong case that the same is true today. Though the type of idols we blend in may have changed, I mean, I understand that we don't leave the Sunday worship of the true God and go home and bow down to figurines that we might have in our homes. But we have idols nevertheless, idols that compete against and sometimes overshadow our allegiance to God. I mean, is this not glaringly true by the fact that so many professing believers have so little time for serving or worshiping God? Everything else takes precedence on the Lord's day and yet they seldom stop to think that those things have become idols, no matter how good they might be. And I'm not saying they're necessarily evil. They might be good and beneficial, but when they take the place of God, they have become idols. Many professing believers are like college athletes. They make a commitment, but that commitment no longer means much of anything because they can change that commitment anytime they want to, even after they sign the letter of intent. They can switch schools now due to the transfer portal and go anywhere they want to go whenever they want to go. So a commitment means very little these days. Is God pleased as long as we are occasionally committed? Is God pleased as long as we are committed when there is no better option? Is God pleased when we limp along, going back and forth between commitment to him and the other things in our lives? And when we don't know how to answer that question, we are in fact answering the question because their silence spoke volumes about where they stood with God and how they had compromised and become complacent. So that is the silence before, the silence of confusion before the battle, but there's a second silence, the silence of fiction during the battle. So let's pick up the story in verse 
22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed down upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. A second scene of silence, this time because of the fact that it's all fiction. Elijah gives them the first opportunity. And remember, this is sudden death. It is the God who answers by fire that is God. And so if Baal answers by fire, then Elijah isn't even going to have a chance. He's not even going to have an opportunity because he allows them to go first. And so if Baal is real and responds, then the battle is over. And so they make all of the preparations. They start pleading with God to answer. And surely this God of nature, this God of rain, could produce one thunderbolt to cause a fire on the sacrifice. This goes on all morning with increasing intensity. He even says they were limping around the altar, which is a interesting way to word it because he's already used that word to talk about the people who were there going back and forth between two opinions and now he uses the same word to talk about these false prophets who are limping around the altar they cut themselves as was their custom to show their passion and and desire they're growing in their religious intensity this must have been quite the spectacle in the show but it merely ended with nothing, no voice, no one answered. But had they gone home at this point, there would have certainly been a lot of talk about the worship service that morning. I mean, wasn't that great? There was all kinds of passion and all kinds of intensity, and yet this is a subtle reminder that all of those things do not necessarily mean that we are genuinely worshiping the Lord. Because unless we are worshiping the true God, we are worshiping nothing at all. No matter how much excitement, no matter how much passion. And so Elijah begins to mock them and their gods. Perhaps your gods haven't answered because they're thinking about how they're going to answer. Perhaps they haven't answered because they are on a journey. They are out of town. Perhaps they are sleeping and need to be aroused. Or maybe they've gone to the bathroom, he says. 
Maybe that's why you haven't got an answer. And yet we know the true reason they haven't answered. And the true reason is because this is all fiction. These are gods who are no gods at all. The silence here from the gods is a fictitional silence because they are not real and therefore they cannot answer. And so twice we have the conclusion, verse 26. There was no voice. No one answered. Verse 29, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Remember, Elijah had said it is the God who answers by fire who is going to be God. And these false prophets have just proven that their God is no God at all. Why then are we so slow to realize that the gods that we erect in our own lives can't answer either? Why do we continue to think that our idols are going to provide peace and satisfaction and contentment, the very things we long for? Why do we keep investing so much of our time and energy in those things that ultimately can't give us what we need nor want at the expense of the one who promised us all of these things? And so now it is Elijah's turn. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the, about the altar as great as would contain two seas of, of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said... Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell, consuming the, altar, the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. The God who answers is the true God, and God answers by fire, winning the battle. Elijah is going to make sure that everyone knows that it is God. There is no coincidence here. There is no chance that this is just a, a subtle thing. This is not an accident. This is God who is making this fire. But before he does that, he has to repair the altar. That tells us just how far idolatry had come in these days. The altar had been torn down and nobody had bothered to repair it. And so Elijah takes 12 stones even though the Israelites are divided into two kingdoms, he takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, telling us that in God's eyes, this is still one people. And in comparison to all of the activity of the false prophets, all of the hours of crying out, lipping around the altar, the cutting of themselves, all of this activity, Elijah, his prayer is in sharp contrast to this. He simply and humbly asks God to respond. 
but he says he wants God to respond for his own name's sake. This is not about Elijah's name and fame being known. This is not about Elijah being remembered for a great victory. Elijah says, I am simply a servant of God, going and doing and saying what you are directing me to do. A spokesperson. But what he really wants is God's name to be known so that God will win the battle. And we said during our burning bush encounter with Moses that fire in the Old Testament is often a symbol of the presence of God. We didn't look at it when we looked at Solomon, but after Solomon dedicates the temple, the fire comes from God there as well, symbolizing God's presence in the temple. And here we have the fire of God falling as well. There is another reason why Elijah wants God to win this battle with fire, and it is found in the second half of verse 37. Elijah wants the people to turn back to God. And he believes this will happen when God demonstrates himself in front of all of these false prophets. He wants to turn their silence. Remember at the beginning of the story, they don't know how to answer, and so they're silent. He wants to turn that silence into worship. Worship of the one true God who has just demonstrated himself to them. And he wants to put an end to all of this limping between various gods. And that is exactly what is going to happen. And so let's read the last two verses as we come to the end of this story and the response of worship that comes after the battle. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The people are no longer silent. Instead, they fall to the ground and worship the God who has won the battle. They see now that he is the one true God and therefore is the only one worthy of worship. What they have witnessed has helped make up their minds, at least for now. We know, of course, according to their history, and we talked about this last week, that they are going to continue to waffle in the future. They are going to serve God faithfully at times and then rebel against him more often than not. But at least here we have a victory and the proper response of the people turning back to God. No longer limping. No longer uncertain as to who God really is. And so Elijah closes this battle by putting to death all of the 450 prophets of Baal. And there remains a statue of this battle commemorating this moment to this day. And I've got a picture of it that I took uh, some years ago when we were there. A picture of a statue of Elijah. He is there shown with his foot on the neck of one of the prophets about to slay this prophet of Baal, putting him to death. Now we have attempted each week in this series of ancient encounters to to move to the New Testament and see what this has to do with us as New Testament Christians. And with Elijah, that's not very hard to do. Elijah is all over the New Testament, though he is not found in Hebrews chapter 11. But before we get to the New Testament, we actually have to look at the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last two verses tell us that God has promised that before the coming of the Lord, Elijah is going to return. And when Elijah returns, he is going to turn the hearts of the people around, back to God. And so there was an expectation in the New Testament. 
that Elijah was going to come back. Fueled by not only this prophecy from Malachi, but also by the fact that Elijah never died. Elijah is a rare character in the Old Testament who does not face death, but he's merely taken up into heaven. And so based on these two things, his, his departure from this life and the prophecy in Malachi, there was always this expectation that Elijah was going to come back. And that is why in the New Testament, when Jesus asked people, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Their answer always included Elijah. Some people say that you are Elijah. Come back. In fact, even at the cross, we hear the name of Elijah because some people thought that Jesus was crying out for Elijah. Paul mentions Elijah in Romans chapter 11. There he is making the case that God always has his remnant, and he actually quotes from the verses that we've read this morning. Because Elijah thought he was all alone. I and I only am left, he said. But later in the story, God is going to reveal to him that there were 7,000 other men who had not bowed to the prophet Baal. And Paul picks that up in Romans and says God always has his remnant. This is one of the reasons why church is so important to remind us that we are never alone, that we are not the only ones faithfully following Christ, but others are in this battle with us. James likewise mentions Elijah. He talks about the fact that Elijah prayed that there would be no rain, and for three and a half years, there was no rain, and then Elijah prays again just after this story, and the rain comes. And so James highlights the prayer life of Elijah. And he actually says that Elijah is a man like we are. You see, we sometimes think that these Old Testament and maybe even New Testament saints are so far above us that we can't relate to what's going on in their lives, nor can it apply to us. But James says, absolutely not. Elijah was a man just like us. And yet his prayer life was so foundational that he prayed that there wouldn't be rain and there wasn't for three and a half years until he prayed again. Now, I'm not saying that you can control the weather. But I am saying that our prayer life can be a lot better than it is. But the references I want to hone in on concern Elijah, concern Elijah coming before the coming of Christ. In Luke's version of the angel coming to Zechariah to tell him that Elizabeth would have a son and that son would be named John, the angel says to Zechariah, he, talking about the baby, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Following that announcement, we have the same promise coming again, the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy. And then the angel finally says that he is going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then we go to that scene, the Mount of Transfiguration that I mentioned earlier where Peter, James, and John are there with Jesus, and Moses and Elijah are there also. But as they're coming down the mountain, having witnessed what they did, they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus' response was that Elijah had come. But he was not recognized, and because he was not recognized, they didn't listen to him, and instead they persecuted and even killed him. And that story, as they're descending from the Mount of Transfiguration, ends with these words. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John, 
the Baptist. John came as a prophet in the spirit and the power of Elijah, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Jesus also says in that dialogue that he too would suffer at their hands. John's suffering was a prelude to the suffering of Christ, something we will talk about next week as we make our preparations for Easter. But as you can see, Elijah is a prominent figure even in the New Testament. For we cannot understand John, the forerunner of Christ, without understanding something about the spirit and the power of Elijah. And we certainly can't understand Christ without the coming of John the Baptist in that spirit and power of Elijah. So God is victorious in this epic battle on Carmel. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see that God is also victorious over sin and death. But the question for us this morning is, are we limping between two opinions? In spite of the epic victories of God, both here at Carmel and at Calvary and the resurrection, are we still limping between two opinions? Do we have one foot in heaven and one on earth? Are we straddling the fence, trying to make sure that, yes, we will spend eternity in heaven, but we want to have as much fun and excitement along the way as possible? Have we been guilty of embracing Christ but hanging on to our idols at the same time. So let's return to our story one more time, and we'll ask the same question of us that Elijah asked of the people. Verse 21, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So what is your answer? Well, there's two choices. Verse 21b, and the people did not answer him a word. That's one option. You too can have the silence of confusion. I don't know. I don't know which God is God, and so I'm going to try to keep serving all of them just so that I can hedge my bets and make sure that I'm good all along the way. Or do we want to go down to verse 30 and have the right answer? Actually, not verse 30, verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's the right answer. But which answer do you have? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for winning not only this epic battle in history, but winning the battle over sin and death at the cross and rising again that we might have life. I pray you convict us when we limp between two opinions. When we hedge our bets and say we believe in God, but yet we're serving idols as well. I pray that we would recognize those idols, forsake them, bow at your feet and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond. <laughs>